Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Jeremy Saul's latest book, The Last Ottoman Wars, The Human Cost, 1877 to 1923, focuses on the final 50 years of that empire's existence, a time of almost constant warfare, political upheaval, and foreign intervention. The effects of these conflicts remain very much in evidence in today's world, and so does the conventional historical narrative of Muslim perpetrators and Christian victims of violence. His book, which is published by the University of Utah Press, paints a different picture in which all the ethno-religious groups were guilty of violent acts, and the desire of European leaders for Ottoman resources abetted much of the conflict. I'm very pleased to welcome Jeremy Saul to our show now. Hello. Hello. Is it is an understanding of the final half century of the Ottoman Empire relevant in today's world? For example, yesterday, the New York Times published an article about a face-off in Syria between Turkey and Russia, and I couldn't help but think about what you've written in this book. Well, I think that you would, uh, a lot of people are saying in media comment now that the Turkish government's uh, intentions are neo-Ottoman. And what understanding people would have of Ottoman history to be able to say that, I, I don't know. But there is continuity, particularly from the First World War, from the end of the First World War up to the present day, when Ottoman lands were uh, partitioned and uh, the process set in motion then that has lasted until the present time with very negative consequences for most of the Middle East. So what I was doing was actually looking at the 50 years uh, before that period, because although I wanted to look at the First World War, I thought it couldn't be properly understood without looking at that 50-year cycle. And do, you th- do most people in the West even know much about the modern history of the Ottoman Empire beyond uh, the, its uh, military participation in World War I? I don't think they do at all. Um, and why should they? Actually, people are busy with their daily lives. They have a lot of things to do, and they can't spend much time um, reading about Ottoman history if they have any time to read about it at, at all. Um, of course, you would think that um, Europe, uh, you know, parliaments seem to think they know. For example, we've had a whole host of uh, resolutions on the Armenian question passed by the American Congress by various parliaments around the world. And the first question you have to ask yourself is, um, what do these parliamentarians actually know about Ottoman history that, thinks, that makes them think they're capable of passing judgment on what happened? And my view, of course, is they're not competent to pass judgment. Now, you teach at a university in Ankara. Uh, do your students know all of this history? I'm not teaching anymore. I retired five years ago. So I was there for a long time. I taught first in Istanbul, and then I taught in Ankara. And I was surprised because my students, in fact, don't know anything about this history. They know very, very little. Um, I didn't actually teach Ottoman history. It's a more or less a side interest of mine. My real interest is the uh, modern Middle East, the Arab world got on to Ottoman history and asked the students a few questions. Like, for example, I'd say to them, okay, you know, this would come up now and again. Um, how many people, how many Ottoman um, subjects do you think died in the First World War and they'd be dead silence? They wouldn't have a clue. And then someone would put their hand up and say, oh, 50,000? And I'd say no. And someone would say 60. It was like a, a bidding match. And then I'd tell them what I thought the truth was, which is about 4 million people died, mm. and they'd be dead silence. They really had no knowledge at all. You begin your introduction to the book with a question, how should a war be studied? And what's the answer? What kinds of considerations should an historian incorporate? Well, the the thing is, I'm not a military person at all. I don't don't know anything at all about military strategies. And this is not a study 
of military campaigns, although, of course, they come into it. They're the thread on which the whole book is um, is put together. Well, wars is um, in your title. Yeah, sure, sure, because I'm looking at the human cost, what happened to civilian populations um, in all of these wars. Um, and so my uh, in my attempt to understand what happened in the First World War it was not enough in my mind to look at just what happened between 1914 and 1918. I needed to go back further. I needed to look at the roots of this war. I needed to take in, into account the financial matters. Um, I need to take into account relationships between the Ottoman government and the periphery of the empire, particularly relations with um, Kurds and with Armenians. I needed to take into account the physicality of the empire, and in particular the complete undevelopment of the eastern provinces. I mean, it's very hard for us to understand exactly how undeveloped um, those provinces were. There was virtually nothing there by the way of modern development. There were no roads, no railways, almost no hospitals, no pharmacies. Um, a very high level of illiteracy, so forth and so on. And all of that I wanted to take into account to try to understand what the empire was like when it went into this war in 1914. And so that process took me back to 1877 and 78, which is the war between the Ottoman Empire and Russia, which ended in a disaster for the Ottoman Empire and really began the decline, the final decline to the collapse of the empire in 1918. The the, the the so-called Russo-Ottoman War. But you could have, yeah. and you do go back even further, talking about the Crimean War. Uh, yes. But you say that logistics are important in studying a war. What were the logistics that defined Britain, France, and Germany during the period, and I, I guess we should say Tsarist Russia as well? Well, I think that the most of these powers could see the end of the empire coming, and they were already staking out their claims to the territory they would want. I mean, this was kind of well-established well before the First World War. We knew what Britain wanted in particular, and we knew what Russia wanted. America was not in the picture. The United States was you know, represented in Istanbul, but had no territorial designs um, uh, on the empire, and neither at that stage did um, Germany. Um, so there was a the diplomatic game had... A public face and a private face. The British, for example, said constantly that their aim was to uphold the Ottoman Empire to maintain its integrity. But in fact, what they were doing um, ceaselessly was to snip off bits of territory when they thought they could take those bits of territory, and thereby weaken the empire. And this process continued. And Britain wound up. Night. Britain wound up with huge portions of, of the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East after the the uh, after World War One. France with some of it as well. That's true. And both of them wanted to have more after the, uh, when the First World War finished, but they weren't capable of getting exactly all. Um, Britain, uh, the Turkish nationalists finally got their act together and they resisted, they resisted, resisted the British in Western Anatolia and they resisted France in Southeastern Anatolia. And finally, they the, the British were defeated and had to more or less admit defeat and and although they did well out of the war, they didn't get exactly what they wanted, and neither did the French. Now, how was the Ottoman Empire depicted in Western newspapers in the lead-up to World War I? It, basically, it was, well, the, the, of course, the, the common phrase of the sick man of Europe, because whatever was happening inside the empire, it didn't seem able to correct its problems, which were financial and administrative. And there's no doubt at all that the Ottoman government was... Um, seriously interested in reform, but was not able to enact those reforms because partly because of the, the wars that I've discussed. 
that these wars drained Ottoman finances. They ended in a massive loss of territory and the loss of, the loss of all the resources in that territory. So whatever measures the Ottoman government took, they could not get the books balanced, and that continued from the 1860s and 1870s right up to the end of, uh, up to the, end of the uh, First World War. Um, so from the Western point of view, and particularly from the British point of view, the Ottomans are not serious about reform. This is kind of a, a game they were playing to deceive the Europeans, and I think that's entirely untrue. Uh, the Ottomans are not capable of carrying out these reforms for a number of reasons that, you know, you have to really kind of look at the detail very closely to under, understand. Nope. And, uh, and of course, you know, behind, behind this facade of diplomatic, uh, diplomatic um, dealings with the Ottomans was what the British in particular had in mind for what they wanted for themselves. Now, was all the coverage in the Western newspapers also colored by ethnic prejudices or biases? Completely. Completely. <laughs> Completely. The European attitude toward the Ottomans in um, the 19th century was completely characterized by what we would now call Islamophobia. You know, the, the, the magazines, the journals, the newspapers were full of articles written by people who claimed to know Islam, who came, claimed to know the Turkish mind, who claimed to know the Ottoman mind, so forth and so on, and actually displayed a high level of ignorance of everything they were writing about, but they fired up the public. And they fired up to, to the extent that whatever the Turks did, whatever was going on in the Ottoman Empire and far reaches of the empire, you know, things that were very complex on the ground that were hard to understand and could not be understood at a distance, particularly by, by people who had no special knowledge of the Ottoman Empire, was immediately put under the heading of Mohammedanism, as they called it, um, uh, 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 Turkish misgovernment, so forth and so on. Everything was reduced to those elements rather than there being a rational practical assessment of what was happening on the ground um, by people who were well-informed. Now, how did the Ottoman Empire participate in the Crimean War, 1853 to 1856? What alliances did it come out with, and what were the promises made to it after uh, its victory in that conflict? Well, I don't really deal much with the Crimean War. That's kind of incidental in my book. But, but mean, that really leads can't... up to all of this, and uh, some alliances... Yep. Uh, uh, yep. Some of the alliances that, that you cover were actually created during, uh, as a result of that with the Paris Treaty. That's right. Well, this was a war fought by the, the, the British, and fundamentally the British and the Ottomans against, against Russia. And at that time, of course, you know, the, the British had a very high opinion um, of the Turks, particularly because of their fighting ability. And the result, that war resulted in the Treaty of Paris and resulted in a string of promises uh, allegedly made by the Ottomans to introduce reforms into various parts of their empire to prevent the problems that had arisen before from arising again. And that, from the Crimean War to, to the um, 1870s, there were many of those um, edicts issued by the Ottoman government promising various things, or in the minds of the British in particular, promising those things. And those promises in the minds of the British were not fulfilled. Um, and then the British had uh, a kind of a reason, a justification for intervening in Ottoman affairs and making demands on the Sultan to do this or to do that, and uh, even threatening military action if the Sultan didn't do what he was said to have promised. Now, Crimea has been in the news more recently, uh, as uh, has uh, Ukraine, which uh, it was once a part of. Um, is this, uh, what's this history at all? play into what's happened since, or is that totally separate? Is that totally Soviet history? 
Not at all, not at all. I mean, if you actually look at the whole cycle of history in the 19th century, the Crimea and the Caucasus were uh, an, an integral part of it. I mean, all the wars that were fought between Russia and the Ottoman Empire, and, the, and unfortunately the Ottomans never won one. They lost every war they fought with Russia. But each of those wars ended in a massive outpouring of Muslims from those territories, from the Caucasus and from the Crimea, and then from the Balkans in the late uh, 19th century into the Ottoman Anatolian um, heartland. And, of course, those memories don't fade away. Many of Turkey's um, citizens today are the descendants of those people. Uh, uh, they, they came from their, their grand, great-grandfathers or great-parents came from the Balkans or they came from the Caucasus. Many of them came after, came after the First World War. Some came even earlier. So the connections are there very much in the Turkish mind. I'm speaking with Jeremy Salt, whose latest book is The Last Ottoman Wars, The Human Costs, 1877 to 1923. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. After the Crimean War, weren't there several attempts at modernizing reforms, reforms uh, that led away from Sharia law? Yes. In fact, if you actually look at the whole course of reforms up to the end of the 19th century, there was a, a string of them that were introduced from the 1850s onwards. And they had the effect, actually, of displacing Islam as the um, institutional centre of government, because what the Ottomans did to modernise the empire was to introduce laws to Europe. And that tended to push Islam from the centre to the periphery. And it caused a lot of turmoil in Ottoman society because a lot of people didn't like it. In their minds, this is particularly the judges, the scholars and people like that, the ulama, um, the traditional Ottoman order was being upended. In fact, it was being upended because the reformers in the Ottoman government, they were, of course, good Muslims, but they, you know, they were modern states, states people whose interests were the, were the affairs of the state, and they realised that to modernise, that this is what had to be done. So they brought these laws in. And, uh, and uh, uh, many of the, these, the, the religious class uh, simply didn't like them one little bit. So they're very, very hard to push through. There's a lot of resistance to them in the courts, for example. You know, secular laws, a secular court system was introduced in the 1870s, and there were judges who said, well, I don't really care what the, judgment, what the, what the government says. I'm going, to, I'm going to issue my decisions according to the laws as I've always understood them, which, of course, was Sharia law. So testimony of Christians against Muslims wasn't accepted in the courts, despite the fact well, that the new laws were, were for uh, religious equality? Well, there were mixed courts. There were mixed courts for, for that, um, finally. But, um, you know, these were very difficult things for the, uh, for the Ottoman reformers to push through because they really did go against the traditional order, which had lasted up to the 1850s, 1860s. Well, since the Ottoman Empire was uh, so vast, including had uh, portions of Europe, how were the Ottoman reforms viewed in Europe? Well, they weren't taken. They, there was, a, there was a, an attitude in Europe that the Ottomans were not serious about reform, that they were not that, that these reforms were just, as the common phrase, was dust thrown in the thrown thrown uh, up before the, the Europeans to deceive them. But if you look at the record, clearly, of course, they were uh, they were seriously interested in reform. They knew that the empire had to be reformed. It had to change. It had to be modernised in every single respect whether you're talking about the administration, whether you're talking about financial organisation, whether you're talking about the military, uh, whatever you're talking about, the empire uh, was, was well behind um, kind of European standards and had to catch up to defend itself and function 
you know, on a basis of equality with these other states. So this is an enormous task that these reformers undertook largely from the 1850s. Um, but old habits die hard. And if, for example, you're trying to introduce provincial reform, you're dealing with kind of vested interests and people who um, will stick to the old way. And uh, when the government is not particularly strong in those far regions, they have a lot of local influence to stop whatever a government might want to do. This is particularly true of eastern Anatolia, which is extremely undeveloped. So the goal was uh, something that might be called Ottomanism, but uh, it proved impossible for the empire to create a sense of Ottoman identity that could transcend ethnic and religious divisions? Well, I suppose Ottoman was... Ottoman, um, was, they introduced it too late. The Ottoman, for me, the Ottoman system was really quite interesting. It was a, a kind of very early example of multiculturalism or multi-ethnicity. Because fundamentally, what the Ottoman said, I mean, it's common to say that the Muslims were the ruling class and that the, the others were kind of the secondary class. This is not really quite true, because in the Ottoman Islamic order, there's segmentation between various groups. Um, but what the Ottoman government said to the minorities, as we would call them, to the Christians and to the Jews, look, you obey the law, you know, do what you're supposed to do, and then you can run your own affairs the way you want. You can you know, have your newspapers, you can run your schools, you can have your... Your, your community councils, and we won't interfere. And that was the way it worked uh, for a very long period of time. But then the problem, of course, was the rise of nationalism in the 19th century, which really wrecked, really wrecked the whole thing. And then the Ottomans, very late in the piece, tried to create an Ottoman sense of identity. But, of course, it was too late by the 1870s. It was much too late. Nationalism had taken hold, and various groups, ethno-religious groups, were going their own way or wanted to go their own way. And so part of the history of the last 50 years is one of upheavals and uprisings by these various groups in the Balkans and in Anatolia. But uh, it's understandable. At the beginning of your book, the period starting in 1877, the empire was quite extensive. It had parts of Europe, Asia, uh, North Africa, and much of the Middle East. Um, uh, the, it had uh, Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, Palestine. Uh, these, uh, these are all areas that... Uh, that don't seem to have much in common. Hello. Yes, I'm here. Do you didn't hear, do you didn't hear the question? No, I didn't. I didn't. Your 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 statement ended that these all areas that have have what? Oh, I was saying that the uh, the empire was quite extensive. Parts of Europe, Asia, North Africa, much of the Middle East. Uh, they don't have much in common. Well, no, it was an empire. I suppose you could say that that's about many, many empires. You know, that there was a center, and the further you go from the center, the less the center seems to have in common with people on the periphery. Um, of course, there is a lot in common through the agency of Islam. But if you look at North Africa, for example, Ottoman, the Ottoman territories in North Africa were pretty nominal. I mean, the local rulers had a great deal of autonomy, and as long as they paid tribute to the Ottoman sultan in Istanbul and provided soldiers if he, if he needed them, that was all he wanted. But, you know, it's very, very quite easily eventually to upset that order. Now, the, the center, the Ottoman heartland, actually, was not the Middle East, not the Arab world, but it was, um, it was the Balkans. It was in Macedonia. That's, the Balkans was the, the focal point of um, Ottoman attention. So when the Balkans were lost in the war of 1912-1913, that was a tremendous psychological blow to the Ottoman government. Um, of course, the Ottomans had always paid a lot of attention to the Arab provinces, 
and particularly the Hejaz because of, because of the importance of Mecca and Medina, but it was the Balkans that was the real heartland of the Ottoman Empire, up to the, uh, right down to the Balkans War of 1912-13. Much of when they lost us. Much of that area has been in conflict since the fall of the empire. It has. It's been ceaseless conflict, and of course, it's one of the problems when you're writing about the modern Middle East is that you know all you're really writing about is conflict. Nothing has really settled down. You know, and of course, we know that after the First World War, um, the Sykes-Picot um, Treaty, which most people would have some idea about, um, has kind of caused endless problems up to the present day. And there have been all kinds of other issues that have crept into the picture besides. So the region simply has not known peace. And, you know, we know this from reading the headlines every single day. Now, wasn't the, uh, after the Crimean War, uh, didn't the uh, empire have financial problems, uh, foreign Ooh. loans, uh, for example, uh, that uh, were a real drain? Uh, the the revolt in the Balkans was a financial drain. Um, could could the empire afford to even maintain an adequate army? Well, this is the question I I kind of asked, and I think I asked in the introduction is that you know if a government doesn't have money, how does a government govern? And if the government doesn't have money, how does the government reform? And the, the, the answers to these questions are that if a government doesn't have money, it cannot govern properly. It has to be an inefficient government. And if it doesn't have money, it cannot introduce the reforms it wants to introduce. It might have them on paper, but there are many, many financial reasons why it cannot uh, introduce, introduce those reforms. So from the 1860s, uh, 70s onwards, definitely the 70s onwards, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman, Ottoman finances were in a chronically bad state. And there's an interesting comparison to be made here. Of Egypt in the early 19th century, Mehmet Ali, a very intriguing figure. He was illiterate until his middle age, but a very, very clever, um, instinctively clever ruler. And Mehmet Ali wanted to set up um, control over fledgling, fledgling industries. They were kind of workshops, really. But he wanted to control um, primary production in, in Egypt and also the the processing of, of that, those, those, those products, such as sugar, tobacco, and so forth and so on. And the one thing he would not do was take foreign loans. He refused to take foreign loans because he knew what would happen. That once you become dependent on foreign money markets, you are vulnerable politically. Of course, that's what the Ottomans did. They needed money badly from the 1870s. By 1875, 1876, the empire was basically bankrupt. By 1881, it had declared its bankruptcy, and the European powers had set up a public debt administration, which sequestered part of the Ottoman, Ottoman revenue. So they simply could not get their finances in order. They tried everything. They debased the currency. They introduced paper money, which no one trusted, no one wanted. The merchants wouldn't accept it. They did everything. They turned somersaults to try to get the finances on a, on a stable footing. They simply could not do it. And part of the problem, of course, as you've just observed, was the wars that they fought, the wars and the uprisings that were never ending, and they were a complete drain on the economy. And they couldn't, um, and they couldn't raise money through enough taxation? Uh, per, per, because, was there a major difference between modernization and development between Constantinople and the far-flung provinces? It's not a great deal of money you can raise from a, a, a population that's basically very, very poor. Mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to support this um, on the basis of, of taxes you're going to raise from the local people. I mean, one has to try to come to grips with the state of the Ottoman society um, in the late 19th century, like uh, 
a vast number of the people, probably 80 to 90 percent, were illiterate for a start. You know, and underdevelopment, it was almost total in the eastern provinces. It had started in the western provinces. But you're not going to get the money from those sources that you need to develop a state. You can get them from um, foreign consortiums that can see money in the Ottoman Empire, like, for example, the um, Orient Express, which ran from Vienna to Istanbul. That was wonderful because tourism was taking off and it was very exciting to take a train from Vienna to Constantinople. And the railway um, operators could make money out of that. But there's no money in developing railway lines in the eastern provinces. Who wanted to go there? No one. So there was no infrastructure to speak of. No, and there were no developed ports in the eastern Mediterranean. No, 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 not at all. And there were no railway lines. Uh, there, was a, there were rail, rail development in western Turkey. There was, the, as I've just mentioned, the Orient Express. There were railway lines running down the Aegean coast and to a degree going through Konya to the southeast, but then they stopped. Um, and there was no railway at all in the eastern provinces, no railway development at, at all. Partly because Russia... Russia was not prepared to accept rail, railway development close to its own borders. And so if we look at those provinces in particular, the difference between East and West was enormous. The Western provinces were, uh, the cities, Istanbul, Izmir, were on the road to modern, modernization, but the Eastern provinces had not changed and did not change, had not changed even when the First World War broke out. So tremendously, totally undeveloped. One of the focuses of your book is the experiences of ordinary citizens, uh, the civilians, uh, how are the people in the eastern provinces affected by the lack of infrastructure, the system of taxation, and then also natural disasters like droughts and illnesses? Did they have any positive experience of governmental participation in their lives? Well, I think the, the government inspector was the, the tax man who came. The, it was the official who came from the town to an outlying village to impose or demand something. And that was about the only relationship that they had with the government as such. Of course, there would have been respect for Sultan because he was the Padishah, the high representative of Islam. But otherwise, the relationship between the village population in particular in Eastern Anatolia and government officials would have been pretty marginal. And there wasn't a great deal that could be got from them. They were poor. I mean, most people in the Eastern provinces were living at subsistence level. They didn't have a great deal of um, excess uh, money. You know, they lived very close to the line. And what the government would want from them fundamentally would be young men for wars. So the conscription agents would go out, and, uh, and, and of course people might hide their young men. They didn't want them to go and fight wars because fighting a lot of the war was terrible. Uh, the conscript might be sent to Yemen and might never come back. Um, you know, a, and of course the, the absence of young men meant that land couldn't be cultivated and crops couldn't be harvested. So all kinds of evils were associated with conscription. But otherwise, um, what kind of money was the government going to get from a poor population? Maybe you know, a, local, a local kind of agent, a Kurdish tribal chief, could get it through kind of extortion. But you know, that was you know, about, about it, really. Didn't the Sultan try to reform provincial government to make it more efficient and more representative of the population that it governed? He, he, did. he did. He did. There are all kinds of reforms that were laid down or the eastern provinces in particular. But the, I think the problem was, as well, I see it, there is a kind of a concept when they talk about the sultan, and one word you'll see applied, particularly the sultan, Abdul Hamid, who is the, probably the most important sultan of this period, is absolutism. Well, in a sense, that's true, because it was absolutist in the sense that um, there was the constitutional government had been suspended in 1877. So political liberties were really kind of restricted. You know, you had to be very careful what you wrote and what you, what you, what you said. 
But absolutism, in the sense of him controlling everything in his empire, was very far from being true. And if you look at where real power lay in the east, in the eastern provinces, well, the governor would go there. The governor would sit in his, his conic or his mansion in the town, you know, but where did the real power, power lie? It would lie with the tribal chiefs. They were the ones who had real power to gather our men at short notice, um, to, to do what the government might want to be done. And in return for that, the government would give them certain privileges. So it wasn't a question of the Sultan kind of imposing his wishes, kind of a more or less a dictatorial ruler imposing his will on those outlying regions. He effectively devised a system of social contact. You know, you give me this and I'll give you that. You know, you collect my taxes, you keep order in those regions, and this is what I'll give you. And that was pretty much, as I see it, how it works. But, and then there was the, the matter of foreign consuls and their impact on local governments. Um, what was the, the crisis with the Valley of Aleppo, and how did P. Henderson, the British consul, get involved? Oh, well, there were many, many crises in the late 19th century involving British consuls, and some of the British consuls were really well informed. They were very practical men, and they traveled uh, through the province where they'd been assigned, and they, they very meticulously took figures um, to deal with crop production and you know, everything to do with social life. Some of them were not reliable. And many of the uh, issues that came up, uh, particularly involving the Armenians, I suppose, that, that's one part of my book. Which we'll get the to later. Uprising. Yeah, with the uprisings of Armenians in the 19th century. Um, well, the, many of the consuls had a, had a very a kind of a strong bias towards the Armenians, and they had strong connections with the missionaries who saw things in their own light. And so the, the, I think you're, um, the consul you're talking about, the one in Aleppo, um, he, I can't quite remember what he had, what he's supposed to have done, but in general, generally speaking, what the Ottoman government said about these concepts was that they were interfering, they were not on the scene when something happened, they were relying on unreliable evidence, and they uh, uh, basically their, their reports were not to be trusted as to what had happened. But it was their reports that made their way into the European media, into the British media in particular, and were the basis for condemnation um, of the Ottoman government. To, to be made in the British press at the time. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, let's hear a little bit of uh, music from the Ottoman Empire, and then we'll continue this conversation. We are back with Jeremy Salt, whose latest book is The Last Ottoman Wars, The Human Cost, 1877-1923. Just listen to a little bit of the, the, I guess that was the national anthem or something similar to that. No, I was trying to identify what it was, actually. Uh, well, the European, I, com- I think, yeah. Well, I found it on the Internet, and it said that it was music from the Ottoman Empire. Well, anyway, uh, it was quite stirring. Uh, yeah. You you talk a lot about the uh, the imp- 
importance of the interpreters in shaping history in this book. Why were interpreters so important in the storytelling here? Well, because they, they were the transmitters of information. I mean, most of the, uh, the ambassadors, um, all of them, in fact, most probably, they didn't know the local language. They had to rely on interpreters. The interpreters were invariably uh, Muslims. I can't think of one example when there was a Muslim. There were some British people who took on the role. Um, some people did learn the language. Fritz Morris, who was the British M in Istanbul, he was one, a man of very, very strong beliefs, very strong Catholic and very strong um, kind of uh, critical views about Islam. But most of them were Christians, Christian functionaries who worked at the embassy, did the translation and so forth and so on, and so were intermediaries between the, the, between the embassies, between the consulates and the government. So interpreters can shape foreign perceptions uh, uh, of what's going on? Yes, most definitely, most definitely. I mean, you know, when you have an ambassador or a consul who doesn't understand the language at all and has to rely on an interpreter, and the interpreter's interpretation of what is being said well, obviously is going to vary according to interpreters and maybe according to the biases of that particular interpreter. So, of course, they were very influential. Now, the, the six eastern Ottoman provinces became a focal point for foreign attention. Uh, was that because of stories of mistreatment of Christians by Muslims? This goes back to the 1870, and to the war hmm. um, between Russia and the Ottoman Empire in 1877. And in the wake of that war, there was a congress arranged in Berlin. And at that congress, the Ottoman government pledged to introduce reforms in the eastern provinces, basically to protect the Armenians from the ravages of the Kurds and Circassians. And it's, it's quite interesting now that the Kurds are pretty much the favoured children of Europe and I think in America. And in the 19th century, they were regarded by and large in Europe as predators of Christians. But anyway, that was, the, that was the pledge that the Ottoman government was supposed to have given. And over time, those practical reforms or anything practical towards the achievement of those, towards those ends as expressed in the, in the, uh, conve the Berlin Convention were not carried out. So at that point, the British government in particular began to put pressure on the Ottoman government through the 1880s. And the problem with the British, they came up with their own plans of reform. But their plans of reform were not really for all the Ottoman citizens. They were really for one, one group, one ethno-national, ethno-religious national group, which is the Armenians. And specifically in the reform plan they came up with in the 1880s, the Kurds were to be excluded. Um, and the other problem was that the British, although they came up with these rather elaborate plans, were not prepared to pay for them. Uh, they wanted the Ottoman government to pay for them. And of course, the government couldn't pay for them and didn't have the money, even if it were willing to introduce them. Uh, and the other issue was that the British had this kind of elaborate system whereby um, British inspectors would be um, attached to prisons and to courts and tax departments and so forth and so on. But they didn't have enough people, if any at all, who would speak the language and were capable of performing those functions. So the whole thing was a, a kind of a non-starter from the beginning. But the British persisted. And all they, uh, all they succeeded in doing, I think, was to increase tension um, in the eastern provinces, between the Armenians, between the Kurds, between the, uh, between, uh, the European governments and the Ottoman government. And there was a whole heap of problems that came up as a result of that, those pressures for what the British called reforms. And, um, and the British didn't have a fallback plan. They had a plan A, but no plan B, no plan C. So the whole thing finally in the 1890s collapsed. 
Well, there was an influx of, of Protestant missionaries. Were they mostly British? No, the, no, they were mostly American. The uh. Americans had the most, had the biggest presence. The, the British were there first in the early 19th century. Then the Americans followed from the 1820s and very quickly set up their stations all across Anatolia and set them up in Lebanon as well. And in their first days, they encountered a lot of resistance from the local eastern churches. Um, but gradually they settled in and they were accepted uh, by the government and even a, a kind of the, a Protestant kind of um, a privileged position was accepted by the government to operate in Ottoman lands. Some of the missionaries were sensible men. Um, Cyrus Hamlin, who was the founder of Robert College in Istanbul, lived in Ottoman Empire for a very long time and was pretty kind of prosaic in his attitudes and was not at all a bigot. Others were. Many of them were very, very biased. They didn't like Islam. They operated in the empire with the consent of the Ottoman government, but they didn't like the Ottoman government, and they didn't like Islam. And, of course, they were on the spot. So it was their reports that were making their way into the uh, European media, and most of these reports were very, very biased. They said that there was government-approved ethnic violence directed against uh, groups perceived to be dangerous to the state, Greeks, Syrian Christians, Bulgarians, Armenians. Was that true? The Sultan was accused of personally hating Armenians. Did you find any evidence of that? No, no, I don't. I think this is completely untrue. I think it's a slander. Um, I mean, let's bear in mind that the Ottoman state was a declining state. It was not a well-organized state. It didn't have the structures um, that, that were needed to kind of impose its will over everything. But in the 1880s, in the 1890s, it was facing a series of uprisings, which, of course, it ordered to be repressed. Now, in my view, the Ottoman government never issued edicts calling for Christians to be massacred. But when you've got an army, when you've got regular troops taking part in those actions, well, probably they're going to do things they shouldn't do. They're going to um, do very bad things. And undoubtedly that happened. But that's a very different thing in saying that the Sultan ordered all this. And that was the line, the common line in the British press, was that all of this has been orchestrated and ordered by the Sultan. And that, of course, is completely untrue. He didn't do that. It was a situation of uh, kind of um, uprisings, repression of the uprisings, sometimes very bloody repression. Now, millions of Muslims flooded into the Ottoman Empire throughout the 19th century. Where were they coming from? Uh, they, they were described as migrants, were they? No, they were refugees. They were refugees. They weren't migrants. The word is used frequently in many books. It's completely misleading. These people were ref- refugees. They were either driven out during the course of wars from the beginning of the 19th century, or they fled after those wars because of uh, the restrictions, that were, the pressure they felt um, that was put on them by the, the government that had conquered their territories. They came from the Caucasus, they came from the Crimea, they came from the Balkans, they settled in Ottoman lands, and many of them had to move again. Some Cork, uh, refugees from the Caucasus ended up in the Balkans, and when um, the Ottoman lands and the Balkans were attacked, they had to shift again. Um, so there was a steady flow of Muslim refugees into the Ottoman Empire from early in the 19th century, and probably um, by the end of the First World War, something like five to seven million Muslims had come from these conquered lands into the what was left of the Ottoman Empire. How, what caused the uprisings in Bulgaria and Bosnia-Herzegovina? And uh, Sorry, what was um, the reaction of the rest of Europe to them? <clears throat> Well, Europe was very selective in its morality. And well, I think we can say the same thing about Europe now. It was um, when we look at what happened in, in the Balkans before the Russo-Turkish War or Ottoman War of 1877, 
there had been a, effectively an uprising in, in Bulgaria, which was repressed very, very bloodily. And of course, and no doubt they should have been outraged. When Russia went to war on behalf, nominally, of the oppressed Christians of the Bulgarians, it, the Muslims were slaughtered by the Russian army and by the gangs following in the wake of the Russians. Europe hardly raised its voice. And those refugees, even now, those people who were killed and those refugees who fled um, towards the Ottoman um, heartland in Anatolia, they really have no place in the history books. Uh, and this is, you know, you know so you, you, know, you express your outrage uh, when um, one set of atrocities, atrocities committed, but you say nothing when far worse atrocities are committed. I remember. And, and that was kind of. You go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, no, that was pretty characteristic of the British attitude at the time, and it was to, to carry forward from the 1870s through the 1880s into the 1890s, and I think it's still present in the way that the Europe in particular sees the Middle East. I remember studying in high school about the European system of spheres of influence. How did that affect the Ottoman Empire, and how did the ambitions of Italy and Germany, which were both latecomers to the system, affect the Ottoman Empire? Well, there's kind of an imperial club. There's the old imperial club, which was Britain and France, which had, you know, kind of been very active in the 19th century in taking um, Ottoman lands and taking a lot of territory elsewhere, of course. But then there's the newcomers. There was uh, Germany and there was Italy after those two territories were united, and they wanted to join the club. And the thing about the British was, and the French was, they, they accepted they had a right to join the club, but what were they to be given? And what were they be given in such a way that would not involve any kind of loss uh, to the old imperial powers? That was the, game, the way the game was played. And so um, one reason why the, uh, the, like the French and Germany over Morocco, they, they almost came to war uh, in the late 19th century and again in the early 20th century. And that was solved by um, France deciding to give Germany a great slab of territory in South uh, in Southwest Africa, in the Congo, mm-hmm. um, which had, which is, you know, a, a German colonial possession, which they transferred to Germany, so they would have a, a privileged position in Morocco. When Italy went into Libya, um, it kind of went there because we're entitled. We have our own territorial, national, imperial aspirations. We want them settled, and we need land, we need territory. Okay, so there was tacit agreement they could have Libya. It was about the only part left of North Africa, and when um, Italy was on the point of um, losing Libya, then they said, well, we need compensation, we need something else to make up what we've lost in Libya. And the old imperial powers expected to be understanding of that. That was the game, the way it was played. So they and focused they, on Tripoli and then attacked Libya in 1911, the Italians. Yes. The Italians took Libya in 1911, um, you know, and they got stuck on the coast because it was put up by the Libyans um, uh, along with the Ottoman soldiery who were there. Um, stop them from penetrating the interior. And then the Italians, to put pressure on the Ottoman government, bombed uh, the eastern Mediterranean. They bombed Beirut. They sank Ottoman ships in the harbour of Beirut. They bombed the city. They killed a number of people. And that didn't work. They actually then bombed the Dardanelles, the approaches to the Straits of Marmara. And um, and then that almost took took us up to the war of 1912, when the four Balkan states attacked the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire had to make a quick decision and, and drop the campaign against the Italians and defend the bigger enemy, which was by, by 1912, the four Balkan states. So the whole thing was uh, very ruthless. The and empire was involved in a lot of different uprisings. Uh, uh, 
in the lead up to World War One. Uh, di- didn't the Young Turks dis- uh, attempt to make an alliance with Britain during the, these periods of, of conflict? The British, uh, the Young Turks, made many approaches to the British before the First World War. You know, to for an alliance, they wanted better relations. They wanted all kinds of things from Britain, but Britain was not interested. I think Britain had written the Ottoman Empire off, <clears throat> and I think basically the Britain um, also had its eyes on Ottoman territory. And it could see that the war would come sooner or later, that the empire would collapse, and then it would be in a, a strong position to take what it wanted. Britain was not interested um, in having any closer dealings with the Young Turk government. It, you know, it, it had a facade of, yes, we welcome this return to constitutional government, but behind the scenes and in the private correspondence, regarded the Young Turk as radical nationalists who were a danger to British interests. When did the Ottoman Empire sign a secret alliance with the Kaiser's government? Hadn't they already uh, considered an alliance with Russia? Would that have been possible, uh, given their history? They were. They were fishing around for what would suit them best. So, you know, they were. They had signed their, their secret agreement with, um, with Germany in 1914, but they also were approaching other states to see what they could get. But eventually it came down to Germany. And the whole circumstances of how the Ottoman Empire entered the war is still kind of somewhat controversial, but seemed to be in the initiative mainly of the war minister, Andrew Pasha, and something he decided without really taking the cabinet into his confidence. And so there was a lot of dissent even within the cabinet of what he had done, but it was too late because the empire was in the war. Um, Ottoman ships had gone to the Black Sea and bombarded the Russians, and there's no pulling back from that. One of the fascinating stories here is uh, the case against Charles Edward Joris, a, a Belgian yeah. who confessed to attempting to assassinate the sultan um, Yes. In, in 1905, and, and that kind of illustrates the extent of European control in the Ottoman Empire. Yes, it did. It did, you know, because Joris, I mean, what he'd done in Europe, he would have been executed straight away, no doubt. But that was a very sophisticated attempt to kill the Sultan, and it was uh, an Armenian group that he was uh, associated with, and they had imported the carriage from Europe. They packed it with dynamite. It was a very, very sophisticated operation. They had reconnoitred the the uh, sultan's palace and they knew what time he was he, was, he would be going to the mosque and how, how long would it take him from walking the mosque to his carriage and then they would blow him up but what the sultan did was to stay behind the mosque and talk to the people and so the uh, he survived the bomb went off but he survived george was arrested and there's a terrible outcry in europe about his mistreatment and this unfair charges and all the rest of it and Finally, years later, he was released as an act of clemency. But that would never have happened in Europe. And there were great accusations against, uh, you know, Ottoman law and it's, it's you know, it's, it's not, not proper law and it's biased against Joris and all the rest of it. But he's no doubt guilty and would have faced a very severe penalty in Europe. Now, you paint a different, a slightly different picture of what happened with the Armenians than we generally have heard. Um, you describe other instances of relocation of ethnic populations during wartime, like the Japanese internment camps in the United States. How did the Ottoman government justify the temporary law that covered the relocation, um, which led to, what, 600,000 lives lost out of a total Armenian population of 1.6 million? Which is huge, which is yeah. huge. And, of course, we know the Armenians go much higher. They go to 1.5 million. But which, in my view, that can't possibly be correct because that was the total Armenian Ottoman mm-hmm. population, you know, and we know that hundreds of thousands of Armenians survived the war. It was a terrible, terrible situation. But to understand the relocation, you'd have to put into picture a lot of things that were missing, 
from the uh, many of the histories you will read. And the beginning, in my view, and there are many, many um, views about why the relocation was ordered, um, in my view, a key to this was the defeat of the Ottoman army in the Battle of Sarakamish um, early in 1915. And what had happened was the Ottoman Third Army had been tasked with going into the mountains on the Russian Ottoman border and launched a surprise attack on the Russians at this place called Sarakamish. Well, it began very well in December, but by January, the most terrible blizzard had set in. The Ottoman troops were not well provisioned. They weren't wearing, uh, weren't probably, weren't wearing winter clothing, and thousands of them simply froze to death. Many, 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 many tens of thousands froze to death. So, from a fighting force of 90,000, the Ottoman Third Army used to about 20,000 men. After that battle, by May, the standing strength of the army was about 23,000 men. So the army couldn't provide security for northeastern Anatolia, which was its remit. And in that six-month period, there was the, the terrible internecine violence between um, Ottoman subjects, between Christians and between Muslims, attacks by Armenians, counterattacks by Muslims, so forth and so on, which the army couldn't stop, didn't have the resources to stop, didn't have the manpower to stop, um, combined with attacks on supply lines, lines of communication um, behind the Ottoman lines by various insurgent groups. All of this culminating in an uprising in Van uh, in, uh, in April 1915. Now, to the Armenians, it was a defensive operation. To the Ottomans, it was a, an uprising. And the, um, the effect of that was that Van was taken over by the Armenians and was handed over to the Russians, who incorporated, incorporated into the Russian administration of the Caucasus. Now, in the process of that uprising, many, many, many thousands of um, Ottoman Muslims were killed in Van City and in the villages around the lake. And then there, um, was, then there was the Caucasus. We're pretty much almost out of time. The, the chaos in the Caucasus after the Bolshevik Revolution, did that help the Ottomans politically and militarily? Uh, there, was a, there, there was also an alliance of the Azerbaij- of Azerbaijanis and the Ottomans. So that's, that's later, not in 1915, as the Russian Empire was still holding together. And that uh, helped the Ottomans in 1917, but... The situation in Van was was, shock, was was terrible, and I think from the perspective of the military command, okay, Van is gone, so which city is going to be next? We have to do something. And so they seized upon this kind of radical measure of removing the mass of the Armenian population in the eastern provinces, you know, and it turned into uh, a disaster for the Armenians. It, was, it, it probably couldn't work because in the situation of war, how on earth was the Ottoman government going to carry this out? But that was what the military had recommended. It has to be done. And so they did it. And it was, it was um, an epic disaster for the Armenians. But the point I want to make here, I know you're finishing soon, is that in my book, one thing I do want to draw out is the number of Muslims who died in this war who were overlooked in just about all histories. And I think that the Ottoman total population lost about 4 million. Um, less than a few of the uh, one million Ottoman soldiers died, and most of them died from disease anyway, rather than combat. And we had about 2.5 million Muslims who died in this war. Many of them died from exactly the same causes as the Armenians died from, from massacre, from disease, from exposure, so forth and so on. And so I think an important point I make, and no doubt will be challenged, is that the, this binary between the perpetrator and the victim is a false one. That in all the groups, whether you're talking about Turks, whether you're talking about the Kurds, whether you're talking about the Armenians, whomever you're talking about, there are perpetrators and victims of violence in exactly the same group. They all did bad things, and they all had innocent people who suffered terribly in this war. I think that's a very important point to be made. Indeed. Because so far, 
In the last so, minute, why, why do you say that the Paris Peace Conference was not a peace conference? And uh, what happened as a result of the, uh, the treaties of Versailles and Sèvres? How much uh, territory did the empire lose as a result of those treaties? Uh, well, which which uh, treaty? Sorry. Um, well, first of all, what about the Paris Peace Conference? You say it wasn't a peace conference. Well, no, it wasn't. In my view, it wasn't because it was a peace conference in the in the eyes of the victors. So what they did by by occupying the lands of the Middle East was to, was to was to trigger off and generate resistance. A resistance, of course, of course, the people were going to resist. They didn't want to be occupied. So whether you look at Palestine, whether you look at Iraq, wherever you look, whether you look at Syria. Um, the local people rose up against the British and against the French and fought, fought wars against them and tried to throw them out. You know, so what kind of peace is this if the peace that you've imposed is just figured off a whole wave of uh, subsidiary wars? I uh, thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, I've been speaking with Jeremy Salt. We we barely covered all of the things that are in his uh, amazing book, a book that uh, tells a very different story than we usually hear about what happened in the lead-up to World War One. The Last Ottoman Wars, The Human Cost, 1877-1923, published by the University of Utah Press. It's been a great pleasure having you on our show. Thank you, Linda. Thank you very much for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Fran Higgins, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also, our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we invite you to leave comments on any of those sites. Uh, we know you have strong opinions about some of the things that we discuss. We hope that you'll join us tomorrow when Pulitzer Prize-winning graphic novelist Art Spiegelman will di discuss the history of screwball comics. We'll see you then. Thank you.